Hi, welcome to Back to Excited. My name is Arvind. Joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPlanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooleman. Hi, everybody. How you doing, Fooleman? Not too bad. How about yourself? I'm, I'm doing well. It's been a while since we, we got back in the saddle, but the, the NHL regular season is fast approaching. And yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk some Leaf stuff. Mm-hmm. Now, we were all prepared to do the usual training camp. Here's who looks good in preseason. Here's what's going on with these various players. Kind of chatter that you would expect at the start of a season. And we are still going to do that. However, uh, last night, Robin Lehner had a string of tweets that almost immediately forced itself to the top of the news pile for the whole NHL. It's pretty serious and pretty heavy stuff, but I don't think that we can really avoid talking about it. It's too important. Yes, agree. So, the crux of what he was talking about was the overuse and unprescribed distribution of Ambien and benzodiazepines, which are a class of sedative medications in the NHL. Ambien is a sleep aid. Uh, obviously, the schedule of NHL players, there's a lot of travel, a lot of physical pain, a lot of uh, crisscrossing that can impair the normal routines of your life, so you can see why they would want a sleep aid. Um, there are also issues, obviously, with the overuse of painkillers. Um, Lanier talked about that. He specifically called out Flyers coach Alain Vigneault uh, with the following tweet, because I don't want to misrepresent what he said. Hashtag Philadelphia Flyers, dinosaur coach treating people, robots, not human. Fire these dinosaurs. Fire Vigneault, first story, I got proof. Try to shake your way out of this one. Um, so that strongly implies that he's making a bit of a threat there. Uh, that he's going to reveal something unless action is taken. He made uh, a further tweet uh, along those lines saying, Enough for today. For every day that goes by and this sheet keeps going, I'll be releasing a story and proof from myself, ex-players, and current players on what is going on. Truth tweet starts tomorrow unless things don't get fixed. Have fun. Hashtag no filter. And then he tagged the NHL, the NHLPA. Took some runs at the union in his tweets. And the hashtag mental health. Yeah, so, I mean, that's a lot to unpack. Uh, I think the first thing we should probably mention is that these accusations are just on the face of it, very credible. You know, if anyone told me, yeah, the NHL probably has a problem with you know, uh, prescription painkiller abuse and prescription drug abuse, I'd be like, yeah. And then when it's an NHL player who has been on multiple teams saying that, it has a ton of validity because this, you know, this actually agrees with a lot of reporting that has already been done. Uh, Rick Westhead of TSN has reported on, on the overuse of Toradol by NHLers to get through games. Um, and just the culture of hockey is, is really problematic in this sense, isn't it? Yes, very much so. When we talk about Patrice Bergeron, for example, and to be clear, I'm not saying anything specific about what Patrice Bergeron would have taken or used, but he played through the Stanley Cup Finals with, a, I believe it was a broken rib and a punctured lung, among other lesser injuries. That is the standard. That is the example and the expectation. If that is the bar that's being set for NHL players as a whole, the human body can't endure everything, can't endure certain levels of pain, and continue performing without chemical assistance. Yeah, and, well, and I, I highly doubt, you know, again, we can't speculate exactly, but I highly doubt Patrice Bergeron took one aspirin and was like, okay, I'm good. Yeah, like, he would have been in quite a lot of pain. 
Um, and, and again, this is more just a generalized comment about how the NHL operates. Now it's how, nor- how normalized it is to, yeah. you know, play through whatever, like short of your leg dangling by, you know, the, the, you know, your tissue and cartilage or whatever. I don't know about the human body. I don't know if you can dangle by tissue or cartilage, but you get the idea. Short of that, you're expected to play realistically in the playoffs. Yeah, it's a physical sport. It takes a toll on people physically. You suffer more damage than you do, obviously, at a desk job. It's Yeah, and, playing in the NHL yeah. is, like, super not good for you. Yeah, like, and I, we're stating the obvious to start with here, but, you know, teams <laughs> have physicians on staff, people to tend to just the ordinary damage that you're taking day to day. Now, it's understandable to want to play through things, and I have sympathy for that instinct because... These players train their whole lives. They're very competitive people, almost by definition. They don't tend to make the NHL if they're not. So there's an obvious drive to play through some things. And in and of itself, I get that. You know, you wouldn't want to miss Game 7 of the Stanley Cup Finals with something minor. But the culture is such that a whole lot of things get classed as things you can play through that are very serious or that are going to require considerable medication for you to endure right and the team there, there's there's a moral hazard here where the incentives of the teams and the physicians are not necessarily aligned with the players long-term health and again this is nothing new but i, I remember hearing this quote i think it was from the nba but basically uh, an nba team physician said you know my job isn't to get you to be healthy my job is to get you to be healthy enough to play mm. and those are different things right and often healthy enough to play comes at the expense of long-term health, right? Potentially, you know, years down the road, mm-hmm. right? But like the painkiller abuse, the like painkillers don't stop the underlying processes of your, uh, or the underlying results, sorry, the results of your, of the underlying, you know, stresses on your body. Like your knees will still degrade if you're having knee pain and you take a painkiller, mm-hmm. right? It'll, it, and at a certain point, the painkillers will, will stop, maybe stop working or stop being as effective. And, you know, there's a bill to pay eventually, Team physicians aren't concerned with that because their paycheck is signed by the team. And, mm-hmm. you know, the team, I mean, it, it's a lot less relevant to them whether player X has good knees in 25 years than it is for player X to suit up in game seven. Exactly. And that's concerning. That's moral hazard by definition. It's a difficult thing to square with the nature of hockey. D- to be honest, you know, look, I love this sport. If you couldn't tell, 153 episodes in. Uh, I like it. You know, it's a physical game. It can be exciting on that basis. I've seen big hits and cheered, obviously. I think we all have. But the nature of this game takes a toll. The culture of this game takes a toll. And that has an easy potential to be very damaging to the players involved. And so when Lehner says something like that, my first thought is all of those things that we've just talked about. He's probably right is my first instinct i believe him um it's hard to know what's going to come from this he's you know he's conducted this in a very um blunt way you know yeah kind of shoot first ask questions later in some sense and yeah with it's there's a lot of different layers to doing to evaluating this uh as you could probably tell from the fulman read verbatim from from the tweets and they're not expressed in the most clear way now there's a variety of reasons why that could happen that leonard is in his second language for one that's a very obvious thing right um but for another 
they're, they're, you know, Lehner has been very open about his issues with bipolar disorder, about his issues with alcoholism, and these tweets do read as erratic in some sense. So, you know, the only thing I really want to say on that is I hope that he is, you know, this is aside from the veracity of his claims, which I, as you know, we said, we kind of are very, you know, I think are, almost certainly have at least some element of truth in them. But like, just generally speaking, based on this, I hope that he's in a good spot, you know, mentally and physically, and, and he, he's, he's okay. Yes, I hope that he's in a good state to do what he's doing because yeah. he's kind of upsetting the apple, apple cart here. And, you know, he's yes. making these, um, they're not veiled threats. He's making actual threats right. um, to reveal things about significant people in hockey. Again, I'm not saying he's making it up either. I'm not saying he doesn't have material. I'm sure he has seen things. And in doing this, I think he has to be aware he's possibly risking serious consequences for his career. Maybe he's yeah. in a state where he says, I'm ready to do that. I'm 30. I've got four years of five mil left on my contract. Yeah, he's put, a, he's put a bullseye on his back in some sense with the league. And I think that the league has reached out to him and said, you know, do you want to be interviewed by us? And I guess in some sense, that'll be like, okay, you know, tell us what you have to say. And then we will figure out the, the right, you know, <laughs> the, the right form of, uh, you know, procedure from here. Now... <laughs> I, I, I could not blame you if you were maybe a little bit suspicious of the league's motives in that sense of whether they're really interested, you know, they're the guy in the hot dog beam saying, you know, we're all trying to find who's, who's done this, who's responsible for this. Yeah, I saw someone, you know what, it was Dylan Fremlin and he, he posted a headline from uh, the CIA's investigation into like the, the Dark Alliance scandal <laughs> where they turned out to be kind of complicit in cocaine trafficking. And the headline said, CIA investigates and finds no connection between crack cocaine and itself. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and that's what it feels like. Now, to be clear, the reasonable course for the NHL or for the Philadelphia Flyers, who are called up by name with their coach, is to ascertain what these accusations are and then investigate yeah. them. So the thing that they should do and the thing that they would do in the course of a whitewashing start the same way. It's, mm -hmm. is, is the investigation actually sincere or is it incentivized to make the problem go away? And well, the league and has done that in the past on many occasions. And this is where the NHLPA should really like step in and ensure, in theory, to protect their protect their their members, should ensure for some real oversight here. Now, the thing is, we've seen this before with the NHLPA, where you know they, in in some sense, it doesn't seem like they care about protecting all of their members. Um, and the obvious analog to this is how they protest every single hockey suspension. Mm. Uh, even the ones that, you know, where one member of the PA injures another member of the PA and they will argue for on behalf of the person who did the injuring in, in some sense, right? And not for, for example, the, 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 the safety of all players as a whole by maybe making these more, um, more punitive. So, yeah, like it's, as you said, Leonard called out the PA by, pretty directly. Uh, in theory, the PA should absolutely be on top of something like this because this does impact the long-term and short-term health of players. At the same time, there might not just be the, the impetus or the will to do that on the part of players themselves because players view it as like, okay, yeah, this is part of the job. I, I have to take these to get through the day, right? And I, I don't care what about the bill coming due because I need this right now. Mm -hmm. What the real problem is here is that in the moment, 
it's very possible for there to be no one uh, who has an incentive to say, hey, hang on a second here. You know, the player wants to get back out there. The physician wants to get them back out there. The team wants them playing again. And in that moment, you need someone who is at least semi-independent or who is capable of saying, hey, there's a serious risk here about what it means for the player. That's putting aside... Um, the distribution of medication and I, I don't want to step outside my lane here but the things that are being described there are non-physicians distributing prescription drugs well that's not good <laughs> that's that's unethical so yeah that's uh, also illegal isn't it yeah generally speaking it's called uh, drug trafficking so there's are a lot of concerning factors here in terms of what's going on I think Laner is probably pointing at real things. I hope he's prepared for this. You know, Westhead and uh, Alan Walsh, um, player agent, Dan Carcillo, former player who's talked about several of these issues, um, they were all responding to the tweets and talking about things that they found out themselves or things that they believe need to be investigated. I'd love to see this addressed directly. There is a, a real problem, to be honest, that I think a lot of people do not want to look this in the face. And like, yeah, I, I, I'm well, not going to kid my, like it's not comfortable for me either. Well, that yeah, the game that it, I like so much probably is causing this kind of damage. It raises questions of how complicit we are as consumers of hockey, mm-hmm. that we, we are willingly participating in, you know, putting money in the pockets of an industry that may be making its money based on the, you know, destruction of young men's bodies. And mm-hmm. you could say, you know, the, the players know what they're getting into. And, you know, I'm sure they, they do to some extent, right? Like, I, this isn't the same as the concussion lawsuit where it was alleged that essentially the NHL hid the results of, of these things and kept players in the dark, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that's also why concussion lawsuits aren't being, aren't a thing now. Or, or like, aren't, like, the, the time period of, of the alleged wrongdoing is not 2021, Mm-hmm. where there's a lot more knowledge about how bad hockey and football and all contact sports can be for, for traumatic brain injuries. But, yeah, like, we, you know, even despite the fact that there may be no, and there probably is no legal wrongdoing with the NHL of, like, you know, having a, uh, running an industry where the disposable asset is the bodies of people, and, of course, of women's bodies, too, and through women's hockey as well, which is, probably has similar effects. Um, you can still feel... Well, crappy yeah, about it with less contact which i yes i've wondered sometimes if that's the eventual end game for hockey you know with football uh the, the issue that i think a lot of reforms have have run into is that you can't really have football without considerable physical contact mm-hmm. you know you have to turn it into a sport without tackling which is just not recognizable you can have a version of hockey that works that doesn't have the level of contact it's just it that's not what the fan base generally wants and the league views it as integral to their product that they have that physicality mm-hmm. and that exacerbates uh, the strain and the damage that that's done to people you know it's it's always going to be a problem this isn't something that i think you can ever just reform and fix because there's always going to be an issue with incentives yeah and it, it, it's a competitive advantage in some mm-hmm. sense right like if it's easy to say theoretically oh we don't want players you know taking potentially jeopardizing their long-term health um, to, to you know, play in a, an important playoff game or an important regular season game. 
But if there's Game 7 Leafs versus Bruins and, you know, David Pasternak and Austin Matthews are in similar levels of pain and one takes painkillers to get through it and the other doesn't, that's a huge competitive edge on the ice. And the incentives for everyone involved in that process is to, you know, go, go through the short-term, yeah, like t- take the painkillers, get on the ice, and then whatever happens after happens after. But, it, you know, it, pro sports is, is short-term by default. Yeah. Right, there may not be a tomorrow. So there's, as you said, the incentives are, are, they're aligned in a way that is really unsuitable to the players' long-term health. You know, from the players, um, from the players' incentives to the team's incentives to the GM's incentives to the league's incentives, they're all set up in a way to potentially really hurt the player down the road. And it's only when a player kind of says, "I've had enough of this," that the incentives shift and then they can be a whistleblower to some extent which seems is like what's kind of happening with Leonard yeah but like until that point it's only when a player says I can no longer do this or this is no longer healthy and I'm no longer willing to to put my body through this to in order in order to play until that point everyone's aligned in a direction that is not necessarily great for the players generally Mm -hmm. so I mean all you can do is have processes in place that try to cut out the most egregious stuff. And, you know, if it's substantiated that uh, trainers were just handing out benzodiazepines uh, like Skittles, that's an obvious thing that can't happen. That's an obvious thing. I mean, that's against rules that already exist, obviously, and laws. But all you can do is try to control the processes as a start. You have to have some kind of rules in place that people are going to abide by because we know the temptation is always going to be uh, to act really aggressively and not in the interest of player health. So mm-hmm. we don't know what to make of this in terms of what's going to happen next. Uh, the league may or may not wind up talking to Laner. Laner may say more things or may reconsider. But the issue that he's pointing to is a very real one. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, Okay. So that transitions to the uh, the lighter topics that we were going to talk about previously. Yeah, it's, this is the the point of the episode where we're like just Mark McGuire in that Simpsons episode. It's like, do you want to hear the truth or do you want to watch some dingers? And now we're going to talk about the dingers. Yes, this is the dingers portion of the podcast. So in training camp, you had some notes about what we care about in preseason. Yes. So, I mean... We're, we're going to get, as we are wont to do on this podcast, we're going to get into the nitty-gritty of things. We're going to talk about the 13th forward for the Leafs with as much you know desire and ferocity as we would hope for that 13th forward to have on the ice. The reality is, and as this is something Katya has, has said a lot, they do not matter, right? They, um, well, they matter in a general sense of, like, you know, they have value as a human being. They, they are not that important to the Leafs' standing cup hopes. Mm-hmm. What is important to the Leafs' standing cup hopes, generally speaking, and I mean, this is true of all teams, but especially true of the Leafs, who are very top-heavy, as we all know, uh, we care that our stars look like stars. Um, now, the biggest question mark, well, there, I guess there's two big question marks about our quote-unquote star players heading into this year. The first was, how is John Tavares going to look after that really scary injury in Game 1 of the, the, the postseason series that shall not be named? And... You know, is he going to be able to... I mean, at the time, we were wondering, is, this, is he going to be able to have a normal life again? And thankfully, as scary as the injury looked, it looked, it ended up being milder than I think a lot of us feared, which is not to say mild in general. 
mm -hmm. but definitely not as potentially life-changing or life-altering as, as we we were worried about. Um, Tavares has come back this preseason, and to my eye, he looks like John Tavares. Yes, it's been encouraging to see. You know, just because it does bear on the thing we talked about in the first segment, it has to be said, Tavares was trying as hard as he possibly could to get himself in a position to come back mm -hmm. if the Leafs continued in the playoffs. And what would have come of that, I don't no, you know, what's better for his health? That's that's an uncomfortable question. Um, I think and it is not one we have the information to answer no. with, with any degree of certainty. No, but it's good that I think it seems like he's had had some time to recover and it looks like he's doing well. So that's it's great for him. That's great for the team. Um, and that is of orders of magnitude more importance in every sense than the stuff that we're going to talk about subsequently. So even though we're not spending much time on it, because we're just saying, yeah, he looks like John Tavares, uh, that is hugely significant. Yes. The and, team and the person. Yeah, and in terms of how he's looked specifically on the ice, I mean, he's gotten a couple power play goals uh, in various games and in, in scrimmages. Uh, he looks like he's playing the net front. And when we get into the later stages of the preseason, when almost everyone is back and we have kind of the full team, we can talk more about the power play. We, we got some inkling of it. Uh, in the blue and white scrimmage where they had Matthews, Marner, and Tavares on the same unit. So we can see, okay, we can plug in where Austin Matthews is going to be there. Mm -hmm. um, and we'll be able to, we'll talk about that more in detail as we see it a bit more. But yeah, he, he's been, he's been good on the power play. We know how good he is in that front. Um, at five on five, I think he's, he's been fine. I mean, it's been very obvious that NHLers take this at, at low speed. The other thing that you care about besides your stars looking good is that no one gets hurt. Mm-hmm. Um, and so far, so good on that front. Yes. But yeah, um, like, yeah. at 5-on-5, five five, I think we'll, we'll, we'll see the same John Tavares as always. He's never been fleet of foot, but he's, he's still so good at protecting the puck. He's still got great vision and a good shot, and we'll, we'll see that at, at various points as well. Yeah, so, so that's a terrific start. Um, Austin Matthews, obviously his health hangs over this. He's recovering from yeah. a wrist injury. Yeah, that's the other, I guess, big question I alluded to. is like, what's the health of, mm -hmm. of Austin Matthews, right? Um, and obviously, he, he, his wasn't a training camp injury. It was essentially an, uh, a surgery in August to... They always use this terminology, and it always creeps me out, but to, to clean up some stuff, um, which is, again, really weird. I don't want my wrist to be cleaned. I would hope that it's, you know, sufficiently clean as is. But, it's yeah, always it's weird always when they scary. dumb down, yeah, like fairly complex medical procedures into something that sounds like normal English. And I'm like, is that good or normal? Is it like... They got a little dust buster. <laughs> Why is there in, in, garbage in, in my wrist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't... <laughs> Just going in with a vacuum. Yeah. So, that, you know, I, I certainly hope that um, that's been addressed in the, the appropriate manner. I can't say more than I'm sure they had good reasons. Um, obviously, the Leafs for both moral and just self-interested reasons, should not rush him. If he's anything less than ready to go, he shouldn't go. Mm -hmm. It sounds like he's on track to be playing on opening night, which is great. Uh, so we'll take them at their word on that one. And if so, that's good. You know, he had, he had a nagging wrist issue all through last year. Um, kind of incredibly, he still won the Rocket Richard in spite of it. Yeah. Which is a real testament to just what an unbelievable talent he is. But yeah, we and, want him in the best possible form. 
For sure. And, and not just for this year, but, you know, beyond. Like, we hope he's a Leaf for the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other thing, I, I, I saw some people remark on this, like, why did he wait so long to have the surgery in, in August? And I, I don't know the answer to that specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, but it could very well be that they tried other non-invasive methods and it wasn't, it wasn't helping. Or it could have been that there was, you know, for example, a lot of swelling after the playoffs or something like that that would have impacted their ability to uh, make a, a good diagnosis or, or to take treatments uh, you know, at, at that time. So there's, there's a variety of reasons. We, we don't know, but like, it, it, it's not like, oh, Matthews is trying to get out of training camp by, by delaying the surgery. Uh, later well I mean, it could be but that, that's not my default assumption yeah no we, yeah we should be hesitant the only times i'm willing to to make any pronouncements is something like with the kucherov thing where the timing is so convenient that i'm a bit like i think that mm-hmm. was massaged a little bit but beyond that you know i'm not a physician i have no idea what was going on that was prior to this decision or that has taken place subsequent to it so all we can do is take the good news and uh believe it as yes we can so Nylander and Marner are playing, which yes. is good. And Nylander has looked very, very good in preseason. Um, Marner has looked less obviously good, but that's not in a way that it concerns me. Uh, mm. It's just, I was, Fulham and I were chatting about this beforehand, but I feel like Nylander's skill set is really well suited to situations where he is just like a level above the opposition because he tends to just like dominate the puck and he can do everything with the puck. And then when people aren't good enough to stop him, he just becomes dominant. Whereas Marner, just by the way he plays, is more dependent on his teammates. And when his teammates are good, that like, is a multiplying force and he becomes really, really impressive and, and more impressive than Nylander in an in NHL sense, generally speaking. But in preseason, um, Nylander kind of always looks amazing. Yeah, and you know, he's such a great all-around player. He can really do everything. And the first week of preseason, we're going to emphasize this because even though everyone knows that it's important. The caliber of play is that of the AHL. Uh-huh. And while there are NHLers or NHL-adjacent people in every game, they may not be giving 110% on every shift. I know that the hockey ideal is always to do that. But the reality is there are guys who are very well established who are still kind of tuning up. Like, they're not going to go bananas trying to assert themselves in a preseason game against players who are going to be back in major junior in a week or two. Exactly. So. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the good thing is none of these guys have given us any real reasons for, for concern. Of course, we want to see more about Tavares. Tavares in general is tricky to evaluate because he never looks that amazing, mm-hmm. right? Even, even in his best seasons, it's just, he's like, it's the most boring way to be a superstar player. Yeah. He just, does a lot of things well, works really hard, does not make a ton of mistakes, and it all adds up to him being not flashy and yet brilliant. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's just, so, so much of his game is just, you know, being super quick on pucks and protecting it well, maintaining possession, making good, solid passes, but not usually not like eye-popping passes the way Mitch Marner makes, for example. Um, so yeah, it's like he's... <laughs> He's very, his offensive skill set is just very good at basically everything except, you know, having elite feet. Mm-hmm. And as a result, he's this very boring, yet very effective player. So I think in the preseason in particular, you know, we're, we're, it, it, he, he doesn't stand out to an intense degree. But we, we saw, like, with his ability to just easily, you know, pot in goals on the power play from in tight from, and get chances from short-range positions, uh, 
both at five and five and, and even strength, or sorry, at, at power play and even strength, that he, he, he does look like what we expect him to be generally. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just what he, what, even at his best, he's never someone who you're like, okay, you know, keep an eye on that guy because he, he's just going to blow your mind. It's just yeah. he does a million small things very well and then has the skill to, to take advantage of, of, those, of those small advantages that he gains. Yeah, I, I mean, the, the phrase, you mentioned this before, is that some people called him sort of a discount Crosby. Mm-hmm. It was the same thing. For a player who was as dominant as Crosby was, I think he generated fewer highlights per capita, for lack of a better term, on Certainly his play. Certainly if you compare him to, like, Connor McDavid, who's exactly. just... Exactly. Right, or, or even, like, a lesser player, but uh, someone like Pavel Bure, who was just his high... If you watch a Pavel Bure highlight reel, you're like, this guy was a, one of the five best forwards ever. Yeah, like, it's just absurd. You can't. It seems like there's nothing you can do against him. Right. With McDavid or with Beret, when they get their speed going, like I've watched Connor McDavid go through five players who were all in front of him, like a knife through butter, and it just it was like, oh, well, that's it. What Crosby looked like at his best was actually a parallel of what we've just talked about, where it's like when you have an NHL player trying against AHL competition, you're like, oh, they're just better, and Crosby just looks like a very good, solid professional who came down from whatever league is above the NHL. And of course, that doesn't exist, so that's in space. And so the result is that he just outclassed his competition in a very workmanlike way. I'm not saying he didn't have highlights, because of course he had tons. I'm just saying, for a guy who was no doubt about it, the best player in the world for 10 years, mm-hmm. um, he probably had fewer of them. And Tavares is the scaled-down version of that, where... What was it, that, that highlight reel that some Bruins fan made? Yeah. Where, yeah. They, he called him a tap-in merchant. He's just sort of like, oh, the finisher, John DeVars. And, of course, it's him scoring 47 goals. It's like, oh, what a burn. <laughs> anyway. So, yeah, uh, the more we see of Johnny T looking more like his old self, that's all good news and encouraging. So that's yes. positive. All right. So now we can probably move on to the other players kind of on the roster uh, mm-hmm. and, and the players who are going to be vying for the spots on we presume a top two line um and i guess one thing we should mention with with Tavares we haven't seen him with Nylander yet and in fact i feel like both of them were being used as like ways to evaluate lower uh lineup players is like okay like we want to make sure that as many people as possible have a line mate who can keep up with them or like who who can work well with them so we're going to split up Tavares and 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 Nylander so that you know, now four sets of players or four, four other players have a high-level linemate to work off of and we can kind of evaluate people. Whereas if you put Tavares and Nylander together in preseason, the guy who's playing with them is like, has a completely different job and it's very hard to assess relative to the guys playing with, I don't know, uh, David Kampf and Alex Kerfoot. Right. This is an audition for several of these people and mm-hmm. there are other people who have already been cast in the play. So... The, there are all sorts of different combinations and evaluating priorities that are going on in here, which is why you see these very fun preseason lines where there's some weird stuff going on. Yes, um, but you know, one of these people making said audition is Michael Bunting. And you gotta say, he's doing the most with it. Yeah, he's scored like a thousand goals in the preseason. They're <laughs> all, again, they're, they're all the, the kind of ugly style of goals, which is absolutely fine. That's exactly what we need. Yeah. I would say that he has looked like the better version of himself from what we've expected. You know, coming into the season, we were like, okay, he's not going to dazzle you with, like, otherworldly talent. But what he does have is persistence, ability to get sticks on pucks, go to the dirty areas, 
Curtis Gabriel called him a greasy rat, which is, in hockey, one of the highest compliments you can pay to a player like that. That's mm-hmm. a term of endearment, definitely. But that's also coming off a game where he scored three goals on the power play. Um, he looks like he's going to be in the bumper role on the second power play unit. I think he will be good at that. Um as someone who's going to contest some space in the middle of the ice, and also who can still get his stick on pucks under pressure, which is a specific talent and and a useful one. I don't want to get carried away because, as we've said, he's not playing NHL competition at the moment. Mm-hmm. But he's looked like what he was supposed to look like, and I certainly expect that he's going to be in the top nine somewhere. Yes, um, and the whether, question is just yeah. where at this point. Mm-hmm. But he, you know, I would say he's had the most impressive preseason of anyone on the Leafs who was contending for a job that might be in flux. Him or him or our next guy. Yeah, and well, it's also it speaks to the importance of timing, you know, <laughs> in the sense of like, you know, if you can time your shooting benders well, you know, that can go a long way for you in your career. Yes, I mean, and the reality is, no matter how we slice it or how rational we try to be about it, we're talking about three games, so it's, yes. you know, Th- three games against mixed competition. One of the games was against the team itself yeah <laughs> and th- yeah and then there's also that so the fact that he has four goals in two games is delightful and we should try and keep it in perspective still insofar as he was competing for a job everything that he's done in the preseason games has been positive mm-hmm. to my eye so he's he's probably improved his stock with the coaching staff as he has with other people um, yeah so good, good for him greasy rat um Andre Kasha also falls into the, one, he's looked good, but also the, we're hoping to see that he's fully healthy. Yeah, that, that's, that's a big thing with, with Kasha. And we, we talked about, I mean, the, the podcast where we talked about him going to the Bruins, we were just like so frustrated. that Like, okay, great, they got this other amazing player now. And he was just never healthy in Boston. Mm-hmm. Um, if he's healthy, we know he's good, right? It's that simple. And, um, yeah, and he's immediately looked like that. Like, yes. Well, actually, yeah, I, I should actually walk that back. If he was healthy and returned to his former level of play, we know he's good. It was possible that, A, he's not healthy, and B, that the injuries had taken a toll on his level of play. Again, preseason is very hard to judge in that sense because he's playing against not very good players. But he has – it's looked like the latter is a, le- is a little bit less likely than we thought – than it's, it may have been, you know, three weeks ago. Right. So he's played a lot with David Kahn, who we'll yeah. talk about in a little bit. Uh, Kampf is the defensive center. At this level, Kampf can actually look like an offensive center too. But one of the things that comes through in preseason is, are you a real boy? Like, And certain players just look like, oh yeah, that guy is clearly better than this. You know, who just asserts that I'm one of the best players on the ice. When you're an NHLer against a preseason-y, an early preseason lineup, that's how you should look. You should look better than other players. Kasha has met that standard. Um, and so I, I strongly suspect that they're setting up Kampf and Kasha as the pairing that's going to be the foundation of the third line. Yeah, and it, it seems like the idea there is to have so uh, it's to have kind of a defensive third line that mm-hmm. can you know take away some hard minutes from from Tavares and and uh, Matthews. And I, I think in particular they'll want to take those away from the Tavares line um, as he ages a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. And. I think Kasha, the idea behind having him there is he has the possibility of really adding a little bit of offense to that group. We, we've talked about David Kampf before, and he, he, we'll talk about him a bit more, but, you know, I'm not expecting him to be an offensive dynamo. He, had a, he, he did have, like, a, a couple of nice passes for assists or for good chances 
at various points um, in the in the preseason. But again, I'm not trusting that over his 200 game NHL sample where he he looks like he is a pretty poor offensive player. Yeah, he had one goal last year in 56 mm-hmm. games. You know, the, the guy is just not a scoring center, and so I'm hopeful that this will work out. It like it looks like they're paired together. It may also be a comfort level thing. The Leafs have three players from the Czech Republic who are likely to make the the final roster. And the other one is goalie Peter Morazek. So Kasha and Kampf may have some familiarity there. I don't know if they've played together before or if it's just that they speak the same first language. But they look good. And I'm hopeful that with a left winger who can also add some offensive flair, they might sort of work out. So you're saying Ilya Mikheyev. Yeah, so 100%. (laughs) You know what? I bet that line would have a positive XG. It's yeah. Just... <laughs> <laughs> well, I think I, the Athletic had like this, this um, you know, depth report 1.0 piece, uh, I think on Thursday or maybe Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And they had Mikheyev, Kampf, and Kasha as the, th- the third line. And the idea is like, okay, you know, this is a very defensively toted line. And maybe Kasha can provide some offense. It is asking a lot of Kasha. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, I, I, I'm very high on Kasha when healthy generally. But for him, even for him, that might be a little too much because Mikheyev and Kampf are not at all offensively inclined. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it, it's possible. And I think, you know, I, I definitely don't want to over-centralize too much on, okay, what are the line combinations going to be to start? Because we know Keith tinkers a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you have a roster that's built the way the Leafs do, it, it seems more likely that we're going to have this setting where we have three pairings of center right wingers, as it turns out, where it'll be, you know, Matthews, Marner, Tavares, Nylander, Kampf, and Kasha, and then a, a bunch of options on the left side that can move up and down. Right. Right. And we don't know exactly where they're going to fit in as of right now. But yeah, like, uh, you know, Mikheyev is one of those options, as is Bunting, as is the next guy we'll talk about, Nick Ritchie. Yes. And Nick Ritchie has been fine, to my estimation. Um. The team seems to be drifting in the direction of putting him at first line left wing. Yeah, I don't which, have a huge problem with it. I don't love it. Wouldn't be, I, I mean, maybe I'm just falling prey to recency. I would prefer bunting there. So would I. And I think that it makes sense for a couple of reasons. One, bunting does those things. But two, Richie and Kasha played together quite a lot in Anaheim and did pretty well. And I could see that line coming together in a useful way where Kasha, you know, tries to at least set some things up and Richie goes to the front of the net. And maybe it's a line that can score, even though it's also defensively oriented. If Keefe wants to just go hard, hard defensive match, then maybe he tries something else like Mikhaev. But as mm-hmm. for Richie, this is where we have to keep reminding ourselves, okay, the preseason is not determinative. Yeah. And so for a guy like Bunting, he kind of wishes it were, because if it were, he looked like the best player on the team some nights um or at least the most productive obviously richie has looked okay but he has a track record of being sort of a power forward chip in type warts and all and so if they signed him with the idea of this is who we want playing with matthews and marner a guy who scores from dirty areas then the preseason isn't probably going to change their minds on that they're going to say whatever he's getting into form and we're going to put him where he's going to go so mm-hmm. yeah he fought Ben Chiara, so good, I guess. Probably for having a name that I want to spell as Chariot. There, there's, I mean, we've talked about this before, and 
look, it's going to happen where uh, like Matthews and Marner are on a two-on-one, and then the play gets whistled down because Nick Ritchie f- decided to fight someone 250 <laughs> feet away or something like that. Well, 250 feet away would suggest he went into the stands, but you know, like but you know, maybe very well, <laughs> yeah, very far away from the play, and we'll get all really annoyed. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's for, I, I'm fine with giving him an audition at least. I, I, I do think that Leafs, you know, we can't really afford to fuck around in the, in the regular season that much because the, the division is, is going to be tight. Mm-hmm. But I also don't think, you know, the marginal value from playing Richie there to playing Kerfoot there to playing um, Bunting there, it, it's not, it's probably not enormous, at least not a priori. Mm-hmm. And so, I, yeah, I won't say with any confidence that I know who is better or what. Yeah, Richie exactly. Is the most established. So yes. I think we, I think experimentation is fine. And again, like as we as we alluded to, as if the if the main pairings are there, like if Marner Matthews and Tavares Dinander work as well as they have historically done, the Leafs are going to be a good team. You know, as much negative uh, sentiment as there is about the team, they're going to be a good team because it's really really good to have two lines that are anchored by pairings where you can expect like a 55% XG. Mm -hmm. Very much so. So I think it's interesting keeping an eye on that sort of derby. Um, I guess it's it's jumping ahead slightly. I can say Alex Kerfoot seems fine. He seems like a really natural slot in at second line left wing. Well, that's the thing. I think he seems like a natural slot in anywhere, right? Yeah. Um, I feel like he could also play that... Uh, play on that defensive line and maybe give you a bit more passing new and a, a bit a bit more offense uh, from from the left wing. Granted, we, we tend to see him on the left wing when he's playing a complementary figure to really skilled line mates and on a like more defensive third line with you know an offensive black hole and Kasha in the middle and someone who's who's good offensively or sorry like Kampf in the middle Kasha on the on the right wing who is good offensively but not you know not on the level of the top four. Uh, maybe there's something there, but maybe that also just doesn't work. My Kerfoot con- does have his... Yeah. He has his versatility going for him, though. He- yeah. Uh, my concern with Kerfoot is always, if he's counted on to drive a line, we have a, an increasing body of evidence that that might not work super well. Yeah. It's fine, but it's not ideal. And I think that in getting Kampf and seemingly locking him right into the third-line center job, which is what they yeah. seem to be doing... Well- the Leafs are saying they feel the same way about it. We, we said it at the, at when the deal was signed. Like if we're paying $1.5 million to come to be a fourth-line center, that's, that's, it's, just, it's an overpayment. It's over the odds for, for what you need from that role. Yeah. Right? Whereas if you're paying him to be like a budget third-line center, then, and he actually does a good job of it, suddenly you're actually capturing some value there. Exactly. And, and so with Kerfoot, so I've seen some people slotting him in hypothetically on the fourth line, including the Athletic. Yeah, I would find that surprising, to be honest. It'd be it'd be a little weird. I mean, yeah, it's. I feel like it's more likely, even if it's only just due to his tenure on the team already and a strong playoffs, despite you know pretty middling regular season. I think it's more likely he starts on the second line than he starts yes. on the fourth line. That is and where like, I like, expect him to be, the second line left wing. Yeah, and like maybe someone like Bunting has to start on the fourth line instead, and maybe they swap or, or whatever. But yeah, and so. Or Mikheyev might start on the fourth line. Yeah, and so that's my expectation, but we'll see. Um, yeah, but it's worth noting, just to present like what the reasoning for what the Athletic said there, is that you know the third line and fourth line, there might not be a huge demarcation and time on ice between them. Mm-hmm. Um, 
that I don't because I that I don't necessarily agree with it. But their idea is that you know if you could have a defensively tilted third line and an offensively tilted fourth line, and you know they'll they'll both play a reasonable uh, amount for a death line, but just you know in different situations. But also if you if you have offensive shifts or, or shifts where you know the, the reason you play a defensive third line to in theory match up with a top line of the opposition or at least their second line is so that you can free up your first or second line to go to town on the other team's depth, right? You're not freeing that up to get Jason Spezza offensive zone shifts, mm-hmm. right? That, that, the fourth line, people have talked about this idea before, but I think in practice, the fourth line is there to just soak up some additional minutes um, that, you know, other players are too tired for. You, you really want to lean on the top players to take on those offensive shifts if they're available. So I, I, I don't fully buy that, you know, the third and fourth line will be viewed interchangeably. Um, it's just one will be more offensive, one will be more defensive. It, by, by the nature of how you want to deploy your team, a defensive death line has a lot more utility than an offensive death line because your stars can do the offense better. Exactly. I, I think that there is always a big picture issue when we look at the third and fourth lines and when people talk about the offensive fourth line because I think a lot of uh, progressive hockey fans really like this idea. Well, and, and it, it has worked. I mean, the Leafs have had yeah. an offensively tilted fourth line the last four years, and largely yeah. because of Jason Spezza, it's worked fine. But it's like, we, we can't pretend it's been more than an offensively tilted fourth line, or like it's a, it's a big rule that for someone like Kerfoot, it's not. Mm-hmm. Your fourth line is your fourth line generally because it does not have the best players on the team. And in a capped out league, you probably don't have the depth to have a genuinely good fourth line. They're down there for a reason. And so my expectation is Kerfoot slots higher based on salary and abilities. And the Leafs, the Leafs, the Leafs, whose name I can't pronounce, that's bad, they're important, uh, would shy away from putting him down that far. But we'll see. Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. Well, the other thing is, you know, there's going to be injuries, and then Kerfoot can, if there's an injury to Kampf or an injury to any one of the top centers, Kerfoot will almost immediately have to play center. That's right? the thing that I always have to remind myself. It's like, we're doing this. Someone will be out sometimes. Probably all the time. You know, very few teams have perfect health. Mm-hmm. Um, as for Kampf, just, we've discussed him already considerably. He, I think he, like he's looked like a real boy to me, to meet that test. And he should. He's a 200-plus game NHLer. He's a real player. He's flashed a little bit of offense with Kasha that I don't expect to sustain itself because, again, this is the preseason and he's not doing it against real competition. But I'm trying very hard to talk myself into Kampf and Kasha being the foundation of a good third line. Yeah, it's... I mean, this is... The Leafs really making a bet on their pro scouting, effectively, right? Mm Because I don't think that many people had Kampf... ticketed as like okay this guy can be a, a good shutdown uh third line center and that seems like it's sort of what we're asking him to do now the severity of his role is still tbd right like it i uh, keith has said you know we can't we feel comfortable matching him against anyone at any time that said he, he of course he's not going to be like no nah, we really don't want him against bergeron that'll be a disaster yeah <laughs> he will get wiped <laughs> out if we do that that would be very bad for us so yeah yeah exactly yeah. but you know, there, there's varying degrees of quote-unquote shutdown center, right? Mm-hmm. There's, you know, the, I think the, the most mythical of these is literally the third liner who gets top-line opposition like, mm-hmm. all the time, and there are very few of them. Yes. Um, and I think the more realistic one is like a third liner who will face on net slightly above average 
competition. Yeah, and, and slow it down, shut it down, win its minutes, or at least don't lose them badly. Yeah. And, and so, yeah, if we get that out of it, great. It'll do. Um, Josh Hosang, much discussed. Yeah, so now we're moving into, the, from, the, from the forwards who are going to be on the roster and we're just not totally sure in what form, we're now moving to players who almost certainly will not be on the roster uh, and we're debating, you know, how may they fit in the team longer term. With Hosang, yeah, he's here on a PTO, I believe, so he doesn't have yes. a contract yet, but mm-hmm. I would expect him to get I would expect him to get an NHL contract, um, but primarily spend it on the Marlies. Yeah, I was anticipating an AHL contract with the Marlies, but an NHL contract is also in the Do offering. we have the do we have the SPC space? Yes we do. So Okay. So yeah, they can do I mean either. it's possible. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, the thing is is that for practical purposes, if he signs an AHL contract with the Marlies and the Leafs decide that, no, we do want to do that, he can mutually terminate with the Marlies and then sign with the Leafs. So mm-hmm. there are other options there. They may just go straight for the NHL contract. Um, he's exceeded modest expectations for me, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I think people have always, you know, there's there have always been people who want Josh Hosang to succeed. They see his talent. They like what he brings to the table. They see what he's faced in terms of a league that wasn't very accommodating towards them. At the same time, he did wash out of an SHL team last year for poor conditioning. And that worried me a lot because A, if you're an impact NHLer, your conditioning should not be in question. And B, you should be good enough in the SHL that it doesn't really matter. Even if you have off conditioning, you should be outclassing them because mm-hmm. it's a lower league. Um, so I... I've got to be honest, I expected not much from him coming into camp. I just said, you know, he's a total wild card. And he's done more than that, at least. Well, yeah. Now, the thing is, he spent at least the large part of one preseason game with John Tavares. And again, like, we've, we've, we've seen this story before with John Tavares. We, we said, and well, this is actually one of the things that made me feel a bit more confident with Tavares and how, how he looked. It's like, if I'm noticing Tavares as line mates... That's also, a, that's also a good thing, because Tavares is a type of guy who elevates his alignments, as we saw you know, endlessly when he was in, uh, with the Islanders, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, yeah, he, Tavares makes your job very, much easier if you're someone like Josh Hosang. Exactly. And that's sort of the feather bed. That's mm-hmm. not an opportunity that he can expect to get anytime in the near future, because we've just talked about all the names that are unquestionably ahead of him that are already on NHL deals. Yes. Um, that, you know, the stage that Hosang was at now was last chance saloon. Yeah, and it Kyle was. Dupa said know. as much. It's mm-hmm. like your pro hockey career is in pretty serious jeopardy right now, um, at least at any of the higher levels. So you really got to show something. If he's shown enough that, like, it's okay, you're going to be in the AHL for a bit. We'll keep working on it. We'll see what you can do. That's a win for him. Exactly. Like, if you have anything in your locker, um, playing with John Tavares is a good way to bring it out, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? Especially in a preseason uh, situation where, yeah, I mean, even Hosang, his talent level is, is above a lot of these guys in the preseason, at least like, oh, yeah. on, on the puck for sure. And you can see it. Like, visually, yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, that guy's better. That guy just mm-hmm. has more going on. He does, and this has always been the knock on him uh, in an on-ice fashion, he hangs on to the puck too long. Um, I don't know if that's just a, an instinct held over from times when he was the best player on the team coming up and he just had to do things himself mm-hmm. uh, or when he was so good that it was just much harder to take it from him. 
But I do think that it's something that he's got to keep an eye on if he wants to be an offensive player in the NHL. you got to move quicker, mm-hmm. move the puck quicker. That yes. said, you know, I am certainly happy to have him in the organization. I think yeah, in the this, NHL he can do stuff, and the, if he shows more, great. We probably sound more negative than yeah, we, we are. It, no. it's, just like, it's just like don't get carried away. He did what he had to do in his preseason, I think, which is look lively uh, when placed in a good situation. And yeah. I think it's warranted continued investment into his career to see if he can do something more, whether it's with us eventually or another team. Yeah. I, I, all I'm trying to say is he will not be in the NHL to start the year. No. no. So, and I think, I think it would also take like a, quite, a, quite a rash of injuries for him to get there, even if we sign him to an NHL deal, which, as you said, is not certain. Mm-hmm. But still, he's kept himself in the conversation. He's kept his pro career going, I think, with this showing. And he'll get a non-negligible paycheck from the Marlies, and that, that means something. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, we're predicting this because it, it, it's possible he hasn't looked quite as good to the team as he has to us. But I think yeah. I think he's done well, so mm-hmm. that's good. Nikita Gutsev hasn't. No, and I was <laughs> I was kind of I was you know against my better judgment a bit excited with with mm-hmm. Gusev. With Gusev, I mean, you can see the talent. He I think on in the special teams uh, derby with the blue white game, he like just absolutely howitzered home a couple pucks. And it's like, wow, that is a ridiculously good shot, right? Yeah. And, and he has that capability to bust that out sometimes. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's, you know, we talked about this a lot with, uh, with Jeremy Brockman. Now, funnily enough, Gusev hasn't been a great shooter in his NHL career, uh, generally speaking. But he, he does, you can see some of the puck skills, and that was one example of it. We, we talked about this with Jeremy Brocka, where, yeah, if you put him in the right situation, he can do stuff that wows you. But is he good enough to justify put getting into that position in the first place, mm-hmm. right? And, and with Bronco, the answer is no, not really. And I think it's the same thing with Gusev. In the sense of, like, he, he's kind of an all-offense player who, if you put him in really offensive situations, he'll do stuff that, you know, can be pretty impressive. But is he better at that than the other guys we have in those offensive situations? Well, probably not. And then his faults in other areas of the game make it hard to place him in anything besides that so he's, he's competing for like a really really tiny sliver of nhl space and he's just not quite good enough offensively to make up for his for the lack of anything else exactly it's sort of if the standard is you know how good is he on offense maybe he's like a seven out of ten uh, or higher but when you're like a two out of ten on defense that's a problem. You know? well, the, the other thing is, I don't think he's great as a transition player. I don't think his skating is that great either. No. So he's, he's, he, when we say he's good on offense, what we really mean is he's good in the offensive zone. Yes. Right? Like in, in, in tight spaces in the offensive zone. Like he, he can do stuff. He can see the, the play well. But getting there is, is a problem. And then, you know, surviving in the defensive zone is, is also a problem. Yeah, the commentary on, his, I believe this was Ray Ferraro, he said, you know, the question with him is, can he play with pace? And in this context of, can you keep up with the play? Are you in the right space enough that you are having an impact? Or are you getting there too late to be as effective as you ought to be? And there are players who aren't great skaters who can still sort of play with pace because they anticipate well, because they wind up where they need to be in time to impact it. Gusev, I haven't seen enough. And again, we talk about preseason as, you know, this is a bit of a fun house and it's in some ways easier. He played a fair number of minutes with Kampf and Kasha, both of whom looked real good. And he looked like the odd man out. He, As a guy on a PTO, 
you really got to show something. He hasn't, and so I anticipate this ends with him going to the KHL. Um, speaking of, Kirill Semyonov. Mm-hmm. I have had one entire thought about Kirill Semyonov in the course of these preseason games, because he's not that memorable, but I thought, hey, that guy's working real hard. And that's something. Yeah, uh, that's more, more thoughts than I've had on him. <laughs> so, you know, like, for the record... He's one of those guys where it's like, could he wind up as a good fourth-line grinder type? Sure. The Leafs have a lot of those, unfortunately, and we'll discuss a couple of them towards the end of the segment. And he's waiver-exempt. So they can demote him. Now, he could, because he has a European assignment clause, apparently, that allows him to return to Europe if he's not playing in the NHL. If he wants to do that, that's his prerogative. But there are too many players ahead of him who have somewhat more to offer for me to expect he'll make the NHL. So maybe he'll yeah. play with the Marlies, and in which case, good for him. Uh, and maybe he'll return to Europe. Timothy yep. Liljegren is... Yeah. Okay, so now I guess we're moving here. to the defenseman. Actually, no, not... Yeah. We're just going to talk about one defenseman. I'm looking yeah. at your notes. So <laughs> we will very briefly move to the defenseman and then move back to the forwards. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with Liljegren, it's Katya had a good piece about Liljegren mm-hmm. about whether he can and should make the roster. And I think the short version to sum it up is, if he was considerably better than he, if he was considerably better than our other options, then we could probably make room for him. But there's no evidence that he is right now, and as such, his contract means he is unlikely to be brought up because of esoteric reasons that involve bonuses and the precise amount on his ELC versus the emergency call-up options and things like that. So, you know, the, the former makes it unlikely for him to start on the roster, and the latter makes it quite unlikely for him to be brought up. Uh, mm-hmm. Effectively, not quite unlikely, but it, it requires other choices, and most notably, it requires essentially the Leafs having um, a 21-person roster where they have 12 forwards, seven defensemen, and uh, two goalies, and that is always a little bit tenuous because then if anyone gets the sniffles on the forward end, you're 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 in a you know crappy spot. Mm-hmm. It's it's unfortunate for uh, for Liljegren to sort of be faced with this because I think he's looked pretty good but yeah. because the incentives are all send him to the AHL because there are six guys who are still obviously ahead of him just to recite Riley, Brody, Muzzin, Hall, um, Sandin, and Dermot and so you put all that together and do you want him playing in the NHL once every couple of weeks or something as a seventh defenseman? Or do you want him in the AHL, where I'm sure he's tired of being, but where he plays every day as a top pair guy? And when he's still in a developmental stage, it makes sense to have him there. And your seventh defenseman can be someone like Alex Biega, who's 33 and established, and who doesn't really need to be developed any further and is totally happy to sit in the press box and be a good pro. It's, It's tough, and it does, unfortunately, reflect on how things have gone for Liljegren, that he can't force the Leafs to make another decision. Right. That, I think that is the key to, to bring up, because I think, like a lot of players, Liljegren could succeed in the NHL in the right spot. And I, th- I think that's because the drop-off from depth NHLers to good AHLers is not that enormous. And there's a lot of people who are good in the AHL who would be fine in the right situation in the NHL, and it's a lot of luck to find yourself in that situation, mm-hmm. right? Um, the key to like 
kind of avoiding your career being as dependent on that circumstance of timing is be so good that there is no choice. Mm-hmm. And side note, this is going to uh, come around again when we talk about Nick Robertson. Mm-hmm. Lilligren has not shown himself to be so good that it's like, okay, he, he's clearly, you know, he's out, vastly outperformed X player on who's we earmarked for our top six. We have to maybe make room for him. Um, or we have to like figure out a way to make sure he gets some games, whether that means you know making a trade or something like that. Like, and, and to be clear, that's a really really high bar. That's hard to do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but over the past, over his you know previous NHL sample, over um, his development in the AHL, he hasn't quite shown enough where it's ju- it would have justified that he's making that move and clearing space for him. Um, and he hasn't cleanly outperformed anyone enough to just usurp their job. Yeah, that's the problem. I mentioned this when I profiled Will Ugrin for our top 25 thing in the summer, but you don't just level up in the AHL until someone gives you a job. It's not like an RPG where you just get there by virtue of having done enough. You take someone's job from them. And so that means you come into camp and you play way better than, say, Travis Dermott. And the team thinks, geez, we got to just play him because he's so much better than Travis Dermott. And if that seems like an unfair bar... I'm afraid that's what Lilia Grin's up against. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and yeah, it, yeah. It, it, it is an unfair bar because, like, you know, Dermot has a real NHL contract that isn't, you can't just, like, you know, you're certainly not just waving him. He'll get claimed, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and, like, you, you know, what do you do even if, if Lilia Grin does drastically outperform Dermot over the course of a preseason? Even then, it might not be enough. The team might be like, okay, we'll keep that in mind, but we can't just, like, get rid of Dermot for, um, and, and free up the space. So, yeah, it is really hard. I'm like, unfair in some sense or not unfair but unfortunate in some sense for Lilligren but that that's the reality it's hard to make an NHL roster yeah absolutely and you know next year when he will be waivers eligible and the same logic won't apply the same way maybe that will be less of a drawback to him but that's the bottom line the situation is all saying back to the AHL with you and Lilligren god bless him has looked good but he hasn't looked good enough to change that logic so that's where we're at. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to test whether someone's actually watched the preseason, and don't do this because only insane people watch the preseason, say that as myself, uh, ask them how they've thought Pierre Engvall looked. Because I bet a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, he was fine, he hasn't played. And um, he's had a minor hip issue, apparently. It sounds like it's not serious. Uh, but it's very good for Engvall that it's not, because he's playing for his job. Mm-hmm. And he's by no means guaranteed it. Yeah. So, yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, it's Engvall is, an, again, in an awkward spot where his his contract is probably just, it's a little too much, mm-hmm. right? He's making, what, 1.25 or something like that? Yep. And, you know, you, you, want, you want him on the fourth line, most likely. He can, he can be a, a defensive fourth line center. He has some utility on the PK, his, you know, condor wingspan. Can be can be useful at times. His speed is really impressive for uh, a draft. Um, but yeah, it's just like it's just slightly too much, and that he seems like kind of the thirteenth guy right now. Yeah. But the Leafs are also really tight against the roster, um, or, or against the cap rather. Mm-hmm. And having a guy making one point two five in the press box probably isn't ideal. But also, if you wave him, is he is he going? Probably. And then you have to make a decision between him and Brooks, where Brooks is much cheaper. And maybe even allows you to accrue a bit more cap space on a daily basis. But mm-hmm. then if you wave Engvall, he, you know, he could be gone. And yeah, it's, it's just a mess. Yeah. And so we might as well talk about Engvall and Brooks in concert. Because they're <laughs> both 
you know, hanging around the edge of that 13th forward role. Engvall yeah. has done it more. He's a better defensive player. He's huge. Can't take faceoffs, but Spezza can do that, and then Engvall can be a de facto center if he gets the fourth-line job. Mm-hmm. It's... So there are a lot of things that seem to give Engvall the edge. Well, I think there's generally the versatility. This yeah. is kind of the player-level analog of what we were talking about, about defensive depth lines versus offensive depth lines. Mm-hmm. If you're a defensive depth player, there are just more spots to get in than if you're an offensive depth player. Exactly. Because you also get PK utility, right? Um, if you can play center and wing, that gives you know doubles the spots you're competing for, makes it easier for you to, to be... Uh, you know the next ma- the next man up, especially in the case of an injury. If you go on like road trips, you'll want Pierre Engvall there because whether Kerfoot gets hurt or Spezza gets hurt, you have the same guy who can replace for both. Exactly, and, and so all of that adds up to we think Pierre Engvall has the inside track. However, Adam Brooks has played well in the past. He's played in this preseason. I I'm going to be honest here. I do not have much memory of him. Mm-hmm. It did not stand out to me. However, in general, I like him. He's a better offensive player than Engvall is. He's very smart. He's a good playmaker. And Keefe seems to like him more. I, I can't help noting that that might be a factor because Keefe seems to think Pierre Engvall needs a kick in the ass a hell of a lot, whereas he's liked and trusted Brooks in other situations. And Brooks, you know, has killed penalties and stuff like that. And he's also half a million cheaper against the cap. If you're concerned that one or the other of them might be claimed... You might think, gee, at least Engvall would clear some salary for us. Or you might think, hey, Engvall, we could trade him for a a late pick or something like that. I don't know if there's a market. But there are just enough factors that cloud the issue where you think, maybe I could see Adam Brooks doing it and hanging around. Probably not, but enough that I'm not quite confident in saying it's going to go to Engvall Mm -hmm. in this race. Um. It'll be interesting to, to keep an eye on. Either way, you know, as we said at the beginning of the segment, these are end-of-the-roster choices, and they're not that significant, but... Yeah. Yeah. And did we want to mention Nick Robertson just briefly? Yeah. Again, same thing. I think people really want Nick Robertson to be on the roster because uh, mm-hmm. it's exciting. Yeah. Uh, again, Katya had a great kind of line or a great insight in her post about Lilligren, which is where, you know, the Leafs um, are at the stage where they're trying to win and they're, they're, it's not just hand jobs to young players to see how they develop and to give them reps in, in meaningful NHL games. At the same time, we haven't had the, the team success, obviously, to like get rid of that lingering boredom that comes with the players basically just being the same. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of an awkward spot where, you know, we, we understandably should not have really open spots for young players, but we also haven't been satisfied by actually winning stuff. So, you know, we, we've kind of eaten it on both ends in terms of like things to get excited about. Uh, Nick Robertson represents, obviously, our most talented young player. You know, everyone seems to think he, he is going to get to the point where he's a regular NHLer and po- probably a top six NHLer, right? He has that ability. Again, whose job is he taking? Exactly. Right? He- Count all the names that we just recited, and you get very quickly to the conclusion that there are too many people in front of him. Yeah, and like, who are you confident that Nick Robertson is better than right now? Mm-hmm. And, you know, in the eyes of the team, he's not, I mean, is he better than Kirill, than Kirill Semyonov? Maybe at some things. But, like, that's, you know, the kind of question I'm asking. I'm not even questioning, is he better than Mikhaev or Richie or Bunting, whose jobs he would have to be taking. It's worth remembering, 
Robertson literally just turned 20 a month ago. Hockey, you know, you can get old fast in hockey. You can age out quickly as a prospect. And we've already talked about Lily Grinnis, if he's just yesterday's news, despite him being 22. But Robertson is really, really young. It only seems like this has been a lingering question because he was so spectacular as a teenager that we kind of brought him along in a hurry for a second there. And he popped up in the NHL for a brief minute. It's totally fine for him to go to the AHL and be a top-line AHLer for a year, and then we have this as a real conversation next training camp. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. It's, it's some, just, I, I'm not sure where the, the received wisdom is on that at this point, but just some people on Twitter were like, oh, you haven't included Ro- Robertson in your lineup. I would bet $50 to win $5 that Nick Robertson is not in the opening line, lineup. Yeah, and again, there's so, going to be injuries. Mm-hmm. Right, um, and this is not static. Like Robertson could be a call up later in the year, and in fact, Robertson, unlike Lilligren, has a contract that makes him actually easy to call up. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. Just uh, be patient with that one. Yes. Um, and then one last thing, which is that the Leafs have given Coach Sheldon Keefe an extension. Yes. Um, so I, I don't think there's that much to this. I think this is. This is just one of those weird things that I that exists in sports for some reason, where the idea of like a lame duck head coach is, is viewed as untenable, and I've never fully understood why. It's um, very weird because, you know, you wonder. I guess the implication is, the coach has less credibility with the players because they're thinking, well, even management doesn't believe in him. He's not whatever. We can kind of tune him out and do our own thing. I don't know. I know that the stars maybe not listening to the coaching as much as they'd like has been a concern in the past. On the other hand, the Leafs kind of gave up on Mike Babcock when he had like three and a half years left at an enormous amount of money. Mm-hmm. So it's not like that saved him. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I think what this is, is it guarantees Keith a decent amount of money in the event that he gets fired. And if the playoffs go south this year, it wouldn't surprise me if that happened. Or at least he'd be on a real short leash for whoever comes in next. Yeah, I, I don't think this means a whole lot for his job security. No, it, it means a lot for his financial security. And good yes, for him. yes. You know, when he gets fired, he'll have a paycheck to console him. But I think the pressure is still on the team exactly like it was before this happened. So. Mm-hmm. Okay. Pretty much. All right, so yeah, I think that's basically all we have to, to cover uh, today. We'll be back probably... Uh, I don't know if we're going to do it weekly starting from next week, but, you know, soon after the season, soon as, you know, the season progresses, we're going to go back to our usual weekly schedule. So you'll have more back to excited goodness to uh, fill your weekends with. Yes. And uh, as always, thank you to everyone who listens to us. I remain astonished that we have this kind of regular audience for just a couple of nerds bantering about hockey, mm-hmm. but it's very flattering. And it really we is. do really appreciate it. So yes. thank you. So, yeah, thank you all for listening, as Fudelman said. Uh, you can find all of mine and Fudelman's work at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RVNATFudelman. We'll see you soon.